The history. Tell me what you saw. The people. Hey, neighbor. The legends. I bring good news. The actions. If you build it, he will come. The vision and evolution of Southern California's desert cities. Boy, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. From mid-century. We're halfway there. To modern day. I'm building something. These are the stories of how the greater Palm Springs region has become America's playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. iHub Radio presents Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. Welcome to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. I am Randy Florence. Each week we're going to be here to talk about the valley and the stories of the people who built it. But I'm also going to spend a little time before our first guests come on each week to talk a little bit about the history of our paradise in the desert. And today our spotlight is on Indian Wells. Set in the heart of Southern California's Coachella Valley, Indian Wells is steeped in a very rich and colorful history. From early inhabitants who unearthed its namesake well, a source of life in an otherwise arid desert, to the settlers who pioneered the date industry, to the city's 21st century status as a world-class residential and resort community, Indian Wells enjoys a distinctive narrative that underlies an exceptional lifestyle. There's a lot of history, but picking it up in the 50s and 60s, shortly after the first golf course was built in Palm Springs, the boom was on. In the mid to late 1950s, Johnny Dawson, Jimmy Hines began developing the El Dorado Country Club and Golf Course. Around that same time, Eddie DeSasala and Paul Prom, later joined by Milt Hicks and a name you'll recognize, Desi Arnaz, began building the Indian Wells Country Club and Golf Course. Without question, Indian Wells was created to preserve its residents' independence and vision. As Bert Kavanaugh recalled at the 20th anniversary celebration, Indian Wells incorporated primarily for self-protection. There were other cities eyeing the area, and we wanted to take control rather than be annexed. Moving into the 70s, they started to have some financial issues in Indian Wells, and they sought an alternative source of revenue. Financial consultants suggested the city seek premium destination resorts. Dick Oliphant, who has become Indian Wells' next mayor, was assigned the task of trying to locate suitable resorts. While Mayor Oliphant was in office, Indian Wells met its goals. Two city-owned 18-hole golf courses were built at the golf course at Indian Golf Resort at Indian Wells. American Golf was brought in to manage the courses, which have gone on to win numerous awards. Other accomplishments marked the city's second decade. The former El Dorado Polo Grounds were transformed by Tom Fazio into two world-renowned courses. The Living Desert was established. The Civic Center was built. Indian Wells founded the Cove Communities Fire Commission and Palm Springs Desert Resorts Convention and Visitors Bureau. That is the history of Indian Wells taking us up to now, and a name that I mentioned very early on there was, at that time, Mayor Dick Oliphant. Dick was the guest on the first episode of the Coachella Valley Chronicles. Ten minutes into my first show, I knew we couldn't cover it all in one show. So I'd like to welcome you all to the second episode with Dick Oliphant. Dick, welcome to the Chronicles. Well, good morning, Randy. I'm glad to have you back, and now I can get back to the other 40 cards that we didn't look at uh, the first time. 
Dick, I, um, okay. I, I wanted to move back a little bit. As we talked in the first episode uh, about all of the different things that you've accomplished in your life, one of the things that I picked up on as I thought about that interview was how hard you started working at being successful early in life. And I'm always interested uh, in our leaders, Dick, and, and kind of how they get to where they got. Where did that come from? Where did your drive and your influences come from early in life? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I came from a farming community, as I told you before. And uh, uh, my father died uh, at the age of 28 when I was eight years old. So I really didn't have a uh, fatherly figure for a while. Uh, my mother remarried and uh, the man she remarried was a general contractor. And I grew up in the construction business. And mm. I uh, I liked the business and I thought, you know, this is probably what I should be doing when I graduate from college. And, and that's exactly what I, what I did. And, uh, I worked for him for a short time, but I, I went out on my own right away, as I explained to you in the first episode. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a chance that you were going to do anything other than what you ended up doing? Uh, well, I've, uh, branched off into an awful lot of different things. <laughs> We're going to talk about years. that. Uh, I haven't always been just a developer and a builder, and a, and I'm a realtor. And uh, I was in the banking business. I founded the first bank here in the desert. Um, I, I've had a, quite a variety of opportunities that I've taken and and uh, enjoyed. Well, we're going to talk about more of those uh, in this episode. When we ended the last show, uh, you were making the decision to to move to California. You had uh, built a resort for uh, Mr. Busby, I believe, in Arizona. And on Labor Day, he gave you till Thanksgiving to complete that project, correct? That's right. Dick, I know this is going to probably be the silliest question that I, I will ever ask you. But how were you able to accomplish something in basically 90 days that takes five to six months now just to get somebody to look at the plans? Was it just that different back then? Or was it the effort that you put into it that got everything moving so quickly? Well, it was a co combination of everything, but it was a different day. There were no such things as uh, environmental rules. <laughs> um, when I would take plans into the uh, county for plan check, we'd just stand at the front counter and go through it page by page, and I'd explain it. And... Uh, they would stamp it as I explained it, and when they hit the last page, they told me how much uh, the fee was. I'd give them a check, and I'd walk out. So I might be there an hour. I might be there two hours, but it was all done in, in that length of time. And I built that entire project in Tucson, Rolling Hills. Uh, that, that whole process probably, the planning uh, probably was approved in two hours, and the house plans were probably approved in one hour. And uh, that that's just the way things were done in those days. Was it, when you got to California, was there already a difference in being able to develop as opposed to Arizona? I know there are major differences right now from state to state in, in uh, how easy it is for a developer to build something. But even back then, Dick, was there a big difference between the two states? Uh, no. In 1962, when I arrived 
to uh, do uh, Palm Desert Country Club, Palm City at that time. Um, the county had just appointed a uh, planning director. His name was Tyler Seuss. And he was the first employee of the uh, Riverside County Planning Department. He had an assistant and he had a secretary and that was the entire planning department for the county. <laughs> and uh, I took my planner and my uh, golf course architect. Uh, I made an appointment with Tyler in Riverside. We drove in and uh, we went in and we had all the plans with us. We laid the plans out on the table and went over the plans with Tyler and his assistant and explained what we were doing. And it was interesting because uh, there was no such thing as a planned unit development in those days. Mm -hmm. They didn't know the term. And this was a planned unit development where we had uh, substandard size lots. The minimum lot size in Riverside County at that time was 7,200 square feet. And we were building 6,000 square feet. And why, why were we thinking we could do that? It was because there was no sewer system in the county, mm. in the desert. And uh, so you had to put in a septic tank and you had to have a lot big enough for the septic lines. And we were building a sewer plant. This would be <laughs> the first sewer plant, uh, privately owned sewer plant in the desert. And we were going to sewer every house, so they needed no a septic tank they needed no septic lines so they didn't need the extra square footage so we were able to get a higher density of lots in the project mm. and uh, so when we explained all that of course that was all brand new to them they had had never seen anything like that um, we uh, uh, made a uh, appointment to go before the planning commission who was recently appointed it was their very first planning commission. And the uh, chairman of the planning commission was the local Dodge dealer from here in Coachella Valley. And then uh, there was a, a, a date farmer and, and some <laughs> other people. Uh, we knew everybody. And I had talked to them and tried to explain it to them uh, before the meeting so they wouldn't be confused. And uh, we went before them. Uh, uh, Tyler uh, introduced the project and then uh, my consultants got up each one of them to explain uh, the master planning and the uh, golf course because the golf course was uh, unique as well and uh, uh, Billy Bell had already designed several golf courses in the desert including Tamarisk and uh, uh, Bermuda Dunes Country Club and uh, he's so he was well known. And the meeting lasted uh, approximately an hour. Uh, the chairman asked for a motion. They got it. Uh, a second. He got it. They voted unanimously. And our project was was approved, ready to go to the board of supervisors in approximately an hour. Wow. And I'm talking about 520 acres. This is the first master plan community in Riverside County, and it's uh, got in excess of three thousand units on it. Did did so they it's, did it's they get it? Approval. Did they get what you were trying to put together uh, on the master plan development? Uh, they did. They liked the concept. Yeah, 
So basically, uh, it gave you the ability to walk in and get everything approved at one time that previously required all separate approvals, correct? That's correct. And a lot of public hearings today, um, and things get <clears throat> get challenged. Uh, hardly anybody in the audience when we were there. <laughs> <clears throat> so then we went before the Board of Supervisors two weeks later, and uh, the same thing was repeated, and the uh, the Board of Supervisors uh, did exactly the same thing, made a motion, seconded, passed it, and I was there approximately an hour. So uh, essentially, in public forum, uh, that project, 520 acres, 3,000 units, was approved in two hours. Amazing. Uh, today, that would be a year, year and a half. It took you as long to drive there as the approval process took. <laughs> True. <laughs> That's just crazy, Dick. Well, when we come back um, in a couple of minutes here, we are going to talk a little bit about the building of the infrastructure uh, at Coachella Valley as you got here and started putting together some of these plans, Dick. We'll be back in just a moment on iHub Radio with Coachella Valley Chronicles. You're listening to Randy Florence. Let's just call it what it is. Coachella Valley Chronicles continues on iHub Radio. You are the story. Here's Randy Florence. Welcome back to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. I'm here with my guest, Dick Oliphant. Dick, um, when you moved from Arizona to California, you had five kids by that time, correct? Yes. Was Did Arizona prepare you at all? for moving to the desert area of Southern California. Uh, did it prepare you? I think you mentioned to me even that your family might have come in in August. Is that correct? Yes, I came in June, and I was here until August and uh, attempting to find a house that would house the seven of us. <laughs> and uh, at that time, the uh, the desert was uh, not, didn't have an abundant of housing. And uh, it was hard to find a house that would accommodate seven of us. And I did finally find a house on Via Oliveira near the Riviera Hotel in Palm Springs that was two bedroom, but it had a uh, maid's room off the kitchen and it had a uh, garage with a small apartment in the back. And so uh, I, I rented that and that's that's what we moved into. and. So my wife and I slept in the maid's room and the boys in one room and the girls in the other bedroom. So we made do. I bet and it had you. no air conditioning. It was just a desert cooler. Mm. Um, that was kind of new to us coming from the Midwest. And uh, 
but uh, we lived in our swimming suits and enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> Didn't I think you told me after you moved out of that house, subsequently you found out it had maybe a famous owner, didn't it? We didn't know it at the time. We rented it through a doctor in Chicago. And uh, it was several years later, uh, we were riding with a, a local from Palm Springs, and he pointed out the house that we had rented, and he said, you know, that's Judy Garland's house. <laughs> I said, no, had no idea. So there was nothing in the house that told you it was Judy Garland's home? No, yeah. and we rented it fully furnished. Does that house still exist? Oh, yes. It's, it looks just like it did the day I rented it. It's now Dick Oliphant's house. No. <laughs> hey, Dick, uh, one of my recent guests on the show was uh, Judy Vossler, who you know. And one of the things that Judy told me about the valley, she described a little bit what it looked like in the early years. The early years to her were the 70s. Uh, here in the valley, and she talked about uh, Highway 111, for instance, making the drive between Palm Springs out to La Quinta Resort as just being kind of a two-lane road. I was hoping maybe you could give us kind of an idea of what the desert looked like when you got here. I know there wasn't much infrastructure. Well, uh, we moved into Palm Springs, <laughs> as Judy did, and uh, so I had to commute out to Washington Street every day. And uh, there were really only two ways to get out there because uh, Interstate 10 was under construction. And uh, it was a two-lane road, Highway 111, without a stop sign. Wow. From Palm Springs all the way to Indio. And uh, I can remember when they put in the first stoplight on Palm Canyon and Tokwitz McCollum. Uh, people went down there and drove through back and forth through the light just to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take him to start complaining that there was a traffic light? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody ever complained. I think we needed it at that intersection. Yeah. But uh, I had to plan uh, on uh, a long driving time because it was two lanes, and uh, but people uh, had... Uh, small businesses off of it, and there were residential units off of it. There were trailer parks off of it and so on. So there was some traffic on that, that road even back then. And it took a little while to drive all the way out to Washington Street to uh, go to the project. Uh, the other way was um, I, could, I could drive up uh, Country Club Drive uh, off of Highway 111, turn off at Thunderbird Country Club and drive straight through to Washington. But the problem was that probably about seven out of 10 times you couldn't make it because the sand had drifted over mm -hmm. the road and you weren't able to get through the sand drift on the on Country Club. So uh, I've been stuck out there uh, in my car thinking I could get through it and not make it and have to, uh, I had two-way radios with my project in those days and I could call a golf course and have them come out with a four-wheel drive pickup and pull me out. <laughs> and I've been stuck many times right in the middle of Country Club Drive, particularly where uh, Del Safari Country Club is. That was the worst. So if you started in the morning to get out to where you had to be on Washington Street, how long of a drive was that for you? About 30 minutes. 
Yeah, not significantly different than it is now, but now there's significantly more stoplights. Right. <laughs> and I, the other thing was I could uh, get on my dirt bike at the Riviera Hotel area and drive all the way to the project on Washington Street over sand dunes. There was nothing there. How fun. Now people do that as a hobby. You were doing it just to get to work. <laughs> Dick, when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about all of the infrastructure that you had a part in putting together here in the Coachella Valley. Thanks again for listening. This is the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. We'll be right back. From the Gene Autry Trail to the Empire Polo Grounds. Have you seen it? Like desert sands through an hourglass. With great power comes great responsibility. These are the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. Cool. Here's Randy. Welcome back to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. I'm here on iHub Radio with my guest Dick Oliphant. Dick, you came to the desert in 1962. How old were you when you moved to uh, the desert? Uh, let's see. I think I was 28. 28. You had already accomplished a tremendous amount. So you came here with five children, Jan, and you moved into Palm Springs at, at what was right in the middle of kind of the Rat Pack era of Palm Springs. What was it like for a young family at that time in that area? What, what did you do for entertainment? What did you do for to keep your kids uh, engaged? What was it like at that time? Um, it was very interesting because, uh, first of all, coming over here in the summertime, nothing was open. And every store in Palm Canyon had tinfoil in the windows, <laughs> uh, reflected the sun as you drove down the street. It was a bright, <laughs> bright problem. And uh, in September, the stores opened. Mm. And we had to be ready for school in September, so we had to drive to San Bernardino or to Riverside uh, to do our shopping. Uh, also, uh, if you wanted to go out to a restaurant, uh, there were very few uh, privately owned restaurants open uh, during the summertime either. Even the hotels, everything closed. Hmm. So we would also drive to uh, Banning or Beaumont uh, for they did have some uh, fast food there. They had a McDonald's and uh, a Bob's Big Boy, <laughs> and uh, that was sort of uh, an evening out or a Sunday uh, afternoon uh, lunch or something to drive to Banning or Beaumont for for a sandwich. Wow, was there anything for the to kids? Anything organized for the kids to be involved in back then? No, it was not a real uh, kid-friendly <laughs> time. Although, uh, after a year, I moved from Palm Springs to Indio, which was much more uh, 
kid-friendly, had uh, more business. Well, all their businesses were open year-round. Uh, the downtown Indio area was open. Uh, and there were restaurants and there were uh, shopping places for your kids. And uh, so we we enjoyed moving to Indio. And they had built a brand-new school, the John F. Kennedy School. And so we uh, acquired a house right next to the school. And uh, Jan became very active there and, and formed the first uh, PTA mm-hmm. at that school. Now, Indio at that time, before Palm Desert really went retail, Indio was kind of the retail capital of the valley, wasn't it? Well, uh, Palm Springs was still the mm. primary uh, community. Indio was an agricultural community, and uh, there were... There was a north side of Indio, which was uh, considered uh, the place where the agricultural workers uh, bought or built their houses and had apartments. There was some shopping there that was nice. And uh, then there was a south side of Indio that uh, had newer uh, homes and uh, middle-class families like ours uh, moving in uh, pretty rapidly. And the, they just formed the Desert Sands School District. Mm. And uh, I was work, I worked with the Desert Sands School District administration in that transition from the Coachella Valley uh, administration. So I've been working with the Desert Sands School District from its very beginning. Yeah, we'll talk about you and Jan have been very involved in education here in the desert in a number of different instances. But as you were building, as you were starting to build, uh, you told a very interesting story last time about the snow fences uh, that you found uh, were useful here uh, because sand basically acts the same way as snow. Is that correct? Yes. Uh Is that something that is used by different builders and developers now in sand areas, Dick? Uh, some of it, yes. Uh, it's used a lot now by uh, communities uh, in land that's not yet developed. Mm. Uh, you'll see a lot of it in, in open sand areas. Yeah, we have seen that. And uh, after I did that, uh, Interstate 10 opened, and they found a 1,000 palms uh, uh, about uh, six or seven days out of 10. You'd get sandblasted driving down Interstate 10. And take the paint right off your car and uh, ruin the chrome and everything. So uh, the uh, state highway department, Caltrans, uh, was trying to figure out how in the world to prevent all that damage because the insurance companies were just screaming as well as the people. And uh, so what what did they do? They came out and looked at what we were doing and they went over and bought snow fence and put snow fence up and it cut the uh, sand damage down by at least 50% or more. Wow. Later, uh, of course, they went in and they planted tamarisk trees mm-hmm. and that stopped it completely. And then over time, uh, the tamarisk trees have been allowed to uh, go wild and then people have camped in it, homeless people, and mm-hmm. caught them on fire and it's, it's a mess out there now. But the sand's been pretty well tied down for a long time and so you don't get sandblasted going through there today <laughs> that's nice you can get the same have the same paint job when you get home that you had when you started out yeah exactly so that when, was a real problem back in the early days was trying to keep a windshield really what 
was that just, just from down, sand? Uh, just driving down Highway 111, if uh, the wind came up real hard, all of a sudden went across your car, your windshield was gone. I'm surprised that you weren't one of the first windshield repair shops in town, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> so when you yep. started, you started building, um, you, you put the snow fences up to help the sand, but there was a tremendous amount of infrastructure that needed to be put into place. Um, you were involved in a number of different things, fire departments, ambulance services and such. Talk a little bit about what had to be put into place for the, for the valley to grow, the infrastructure. Well, we did need a fire department. Uh, the county had a, uh, a station in Indio and uh, two men on it with a fire truck. And uh, here we were building 3,000 units uh, that was probably five or six miles away. And uh, so we realized that uh, we, we needed a fire station, a bunch of us that uh, lived there. I worked there. I didn't live there. But uh, so we, we got the county to work with us. Ernie Dunleavy at Bermuda Dunes donated the land and the county built a fire station. And having a fire station is one thing, but uh, manning it is something else. Mm -hmm. uh, so we formed a volunteer fire department. You know, I was the uh, first president of that fire department and later the chief. And uh, we... Uh, uh, had a uh, truck that was put in uh, the station by the county. That truck was more of a brush firefighting truck than a structural firefighting truck. And um, so we volunteers raised money and went out and we bought ourselves a La France uh, real fire truck, open cab and uh, a thousand gallon a minute pumper. And so we had our own fire truck that we would roll out on the fires. Hmm. But we found out that we were having more medical aid calls than we were fire calls. And the medical aid calls uh, uh, required a resuscitator, so we raised money for a resuscitator. And uh, the ambulances in those days were run by the uh, three, three uh, local mortuaries. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, so... Kind of uh, like one-stop shop, right? <laughs> almost. <laughs> uh, there wasn't much chance of survival. They, they were nothing more but a transportation device because one guy would come out as a driver and uh, he would load the person onto the gurney, put him on the back, and drive him to either Palm Springs at Desert Hospital, which was a long drive, mm -hmm. Or take him to a little 20-bed hospital in Indio called the Casita Hospital. Uh, that was a doctor-owned hospital. And uh, so chances of survival were pretty thin. Uh, we started out that uh, when we'd have a medical aid call and the ambulance would arrive, which if it was the Palm Springs ambulance that was on call, you could be waiting for 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, you'd try to sustain that person. Uh, we took advanced first aid, and uh, we could do certain things, and we had a resuscitator. And we would try and sustain the person till the ambulance arrived, and then uh, two of the volunteers would ride to the hospital in the back of the ambulance to try and keep the person alive. And uh, another uh, person would drive behind the ambulance, 
so that they could bring the volunteers back home after we got to the hospital. And that was how we did it for a little while, and then we finally decided we need our own our own, own ambulance. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was a used ambulance for sale up in Anza, and another volunteer and I went up, looked at it. It was uh, it was a van type uh, ambulance, but it looked like it was in good shape. They kept it up, looked like new. So we bought it, and uh, we started equipping it. Um, we started getting calls from the highway patrol after we got our own ambulance uh, because they'd have an auto accident, and the last thing they wanted was the mortuaries to come out because they were of no help. Yes. And uh, some of these people are in really serious shape from auto accidents. And uh, so they started calling us. So we started rolling on automobile accidents all the way out to Mountain Center, all the way down to the Salton Sea, and all the way up to the Whitewater. So a big, long portion of Interstate 10. And uh, we'd have maybe uh, 350 to 400 medical aid calls uh, every year. And uh, finally, there was four of us that uh, went to UCLA, and we got our EMT training and became paramedics. And uh, so I became a paramedic in about 1966, I think it was. That's amazing. And uh, we uh, were not able to communicate with the hospitals like they do today and send uh, vital signs and that sort of thing to the hospital. We had to just take them and know what to do with them ourselves. Uh, we were not allowed to push drugs uh, but we could do a tracheotomy, we could deliver a baby, we could do all kinds of things. And did you do those things, Dick? Uh, yes, we did. Wow. I did a tracheotomy on a guy that had swallowed his tongue that was in his car upside down, belted, out on the freeway. Oh. Was, you know, when you're doing it, you don't think about it, that, but when you get back, you think, holy smoke. What was I, I doing? Stayed. Well, I'm, I'm I saved a, the guy's life. I was just going to say, I imagine it was a good thing for him. Dick, we're going to come back and finish up with the building of the Coachella Valley and your part in it. Everybody, you are on the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. And the where. This is Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. The 411 on the events, the personalities, and the history that have built an oasis in the desert. Here's Randy. Welcome back. We're here with my guest, Dick Oliphant. 
Dick, the last time we talked, you told us a little bit about uh, the development of the Cal State campus and the importance uh, here in the community. But there's other things that you've been very involved in. In the last few minutes here, I'm going to narrow down to just two or three of those if I can. One of the things that you were involved in early on was uh, the development of the Lincoln Club in town. Can you talk to me about how that was put together? Uh, yes, I can. The, the Lincoln Club was founded originally in Orange County. And um, slowly, uh, other Lincoln Clubs opened in the state. And one opened in Riverside. And uh, the owner of the Mission Inn was the... Uh, president and uh, uh, I joined uh, that Lincoln Club and I commuted uh, back and forth once a month to uh, Riverside to the Mission Inn for uh, Republican meetings and uh, so uh, he said you know what we need to do is uh, open a branch in the Coachella Valley of the Lincoln Club and so he and Sonny Bono and Jim Brulte uh, called a meeting at Sonny Bono's house in Palm Springs and invited a number of Republicans to come and uh, talk about forming a Lincoln Club. And at that meeting, we had about 25 or 30 people, and uh, it was decided we needed a Lincoln Club and we should form it. And the problem was, they said, who would be chairman? Nobody would raise their hand, including me. <laughs> And so the meeting actually uh, uh, was closed with the idea that, yes, we'll form a Lincoln Club, but uh, w we need somebody to lead it, and we don't have anybody to lead it. Uh, about two weeks later, uh, Sonny and Jim Brulte and Dwayne, the, the owner of Mission Inn, called me and, and said, we want to have uh, lunch or dinner with you, rather, at uh, Palm Valley Country Club. And so I met with them and we talked and they said, you know, that there's an awful lot of interest in this club, but we've got to have leadership. We want you to be the leader. And I said, you know, my plate is full. I'm just so busy. I, I can't, I just can't do it. So we left that dinner with, uh, without my volunteering. Uh, the very next day, Jim Brulte came into my office and sat down and he said, if I got you somebody who would carry the load, would you be the chairman? And I'll get you a president. And I said, well, I guess maybe I would do that. About two hours later, uh, Tom Freeman walks into my office. And Tom Freeman was the uh, uh, general manager for the Riverside County Fire Department in emergency services for the Coachella Valley. And as mayor, I'd been working with him and got to know him. And so uh, uh, Tom said, I'm your new president. What does that mean? <laughs> so the two of us uh, sat down and talked and and uh, we met again. And Tom said, uh, we need some credibility. So uh, you're a very close friend of uh, President Ford's. Why don't you call him and see if he'll be our honorary chairman? So I called uh, President Ford, and he said, well, I need to know more about it. So we made an appointment. Tom and I went over to see him and uh, explained what we were going to do. And he said, I like the idea. I'll be your honorary chairman. Wow. So uh, 
uh, Tom and I went out. I was the founding chairman. He was the founding president, and President Ford was our honorary chairman. Instant and credibility. And we wound up with uh, recruiting, and our very first meeting, we had 80 people. Hmm. And the club started out with about 80 uh, membership. Uh, those were charter members. And the club uh, grew from there, and that was in 1994. I'm still the founding chairman. <laughs> <laughs> I love the stories of how things start here. There's so many other things here, Dick. But in the last few minutes, I think one of the most important things that happened to the Valley from a structural standpoint was the work with the, the Cove Communities Project. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the impact that that had on the Valley in, uh, in critical services? Uh we uh, had a, a big demand for a uh, ambulance in the city of Indian Wells. I was on the council, and I was the fire chief for the city of Indian Wells at the time. And uh, we, uh, Palm Desert was uh, in need of a fire service. All we had was one station in each of uh, Rancho Mirage, Palm Desert, and Indian Wells with a, a fire engine and uh, one man on duty at all times. So there were three three duty shifts. And uh, that was protecting these fast-growing cities. And uh, our people, uh, particularly our country club members, were interested in an ambulance and paramedics. And, uh, of course, I was a paramedic. And so I... I uh, wanted to put that together for them, but I had to have a way to finance it. So I decided that the best way to do it was to put together some sort of a, um, a community effort between the three cities because we all needed different, different things. And so I approached the city councils and uh, talked to them about uh, forming a common fire department. And uh, it fell on deaf ears uh, for two years. I, I tried and tried and tried. I could not get anybody interested in doing that. When all of a sudden, uh, when Bill Hannon was mayor of Rancho Mirage, uh, he was at a friend's house in uh, here, and uh, he had a heart attack, and they called an ambulance, and it took, took an hour and a half for the ambulance to get there, and the guy died. Mm. And so Bill called me and he said, is that idea of yours uh, of forming a co-community fire department still on? I said, if you're interested in pursuing it, let's go. So uh, we put together a meeting actually in his office and got uh, the mayor and the city manager of Palm Desert, uh, the Ranch Mirage City. Uh, he was the mayor plus uh, his city manager. And I took Prince Pearson, my city manager, and I and we went uh, to this meeting with the idea of forming a fire department. Uh, it was a tough discussion of how we we're going to fund it and so on, and we decided we would pass a separate fire tax in each individual city. Mm. So we did that. So we formed a 10% tax in Indian Wells, 5% tax in uh, Palm Desert and Rancho Mirage, and that became the funding source for us to build the Cove Community Fire Department. Wonderful. which uh, grew into what it is today. Plus, we took on other responsibilities, the Jocelyn Senior Center and the Desert uh, Children's Discovery Museum. Well, Dick, 
Now I'm only down to about 20 cards left, and we're at the end of the uh, episode here. Thank you so much. The things that you've been involved in in this community have been so important. I have enjoyed having you on both of my episodes of the Coachella Valley Chronicles. You are here, Randy Florence, on iHub Radio.